2: are your hosts for the heart of innovation emmy award-winning journalist and founder of the way to my heart kim mcnicholas and interventional cardiologist and founder of the save my piggies health education series dr john phillips
3: hi everyone and welcome to the show when peripheral artery disease is where patients arteries in their legs are completely blocked and they can barely take a step without excruciating pain. They're awakened from a dead sleep with leg cramps. They liken to the worst Charlie horse you can even imagine, with some even nursing a wound that won't heal on their foot or their toe that's infected, and some even have having developed gangrene. Time is really of the essence. Time is tissue. So when a doctor says, hey, patient, you need your arteries opened up and I'm ready to do that for you, They have this glimmer of hope for some much needed relief for their uncongenable pain. But when insurance companies delay approval for these limb salvage procedures or even reject them for whatever reason, we're seeing this more and more often these days. It's really the patient who's left to suffer from pain in which I hear not even a narcotic, not one narcotic can even cut through. But the patients, they're not human beings to these insurance companies. They're purely an entry on a spreadsheet. They're a cost to cut. Insurance companies look for any reason to deny claims, whether it's a media article filled with flawed data that Aetna and Healthcare are now using to make it more difficult for these advanced stage peripheral artery disease patients, Um, known as CLI or critical limb ischemia patients to have limb salvage procedures, or even in Michigan, where one insurance provider denies limb salvage on patients who don't see a certified vascular surgeon, as if a trained interventional cardiologist or a trained interventional radiologist in limb salvage aren't good enough to open up these arteries or aren't qualified. And don't even get me started on Cigna using an algorithm to review and often reject hundreds of thousands of patient health insurance claims with doctors as medical reviewers, simply rubber stamping those denials without reviewing each case. At least here in California, there's a state law that requires that insurers conduct a, quote, thorough fair, and objective, unquote, investigation into each patient claim. So thankfully, just in the past couple of weeks, we're hearing that there's a class action lawsuit that's been filed against Cigna. So we'll see what happens there. But I'm really curious from a doctor's perspective, what it's like for them when it comes to being second-guessed by insurance providers who aren't in direct contact with the patient. Talk about during this show. We have with us Dr. Barry Tedder from Jonesboro, Arkansas. He's going to be joining us. But I think, Dr. John Phillips, it's about time I bring you in, my amazing co-host.
4: Oh, I, Kim.
3: Uh,
4: I, yeah, like you pulled the pulled the pin on that grenade. Gloves are off. I love it. I'm going to – what I'll do is I'm going to maybe play devil's advocate a little bit. So uh, good cop, bad cop. But, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. It's very frustrating. Um, and – I I understand what insurance companies have to do. Clearly, I understand what I have to do and and my colleagues have to do for the patients. You try to make a win-win out of it for everybody, but uh, it is becoming more and more difficult to kind of get some things done for patients. Um, But it's going to be a conversation. I'm really looking forward to hearing Dr. Tedder's thoughts, and I think he has a patient um, um, kind of, you know, problem that he's going to share with us uh, along the lines of uh, not being able to have a uh, procedure uh, approved in a timely fashion. So it should be an interesting show. Definitely um, uh, def- definitely, going to be provocative, for sure.
3: It will. So let's kick it off with a moment of inspiration, a little positivity here.
0: Dr. Yes. John Phillips, spectacular, vascular moment of inspiration. All right. So today I was, try- I was trying to figure out, okay, what... What,
4: what, who can I quote? Um, and I was looking at events in uh, September 30th, uh, to this day in history. So, did you know that in 1846, the anesthetic ether was used for the first time by an American dentist to extract a tooth? Interesting, oh, wow. right? And also in 1938, today in 1938, they tried they signed what was called the. The Treaty of Munich, which was signed by Hitler and Mussolini and, the, and Chamberlain, the um, uh, prime minister of Great Britain that forced Czechoslovakia to give some territory to Germany. They thought signing this would prevent war. But, uh, you know, that kind of backfired. But anyway, speaking of backfiring, James Dean was killed today. Um, his, his Porsche I think he was in California. He was driving to go racing and he, and he was killed uh, by another motorcycle or not by another motorist. But anyway, he's quoted as saying, among other things, he's only 24 when he died. But I thought this was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, we as interventionalists are always discovering new things um, or trying to discover new things like any physician. But uh, his, he's quoted as saying, I think the prime reason for existence, for living in this world is discovery. So let's discover. Let's let's have a let's have a show about discovering what some um, procedures approved uh, in the United States uh, with our current climate of insurance uh, pushback.
3: I also love that you picked that quote because medicine is a practice. We call it practicing medicine, and there are new discoveries every single day. And that's what's so interesting when it comes to insurance that. When I was talking to an insurance expert just the other day with Fulcrum Strategies, he was saying that not one insurance company wants to be the first to actually cover a brand new procedure. Um, He was was referencing even that not one insurance company wants to cover a lot of these new weight loss drugs, because then you have the situation where you know, maybe in a year another study comes out that says, Whoops, they don't work. You know, you kind of wasted your money. Now you have bigger problems with these patients. But also you have another interesting problem where when the word gets out that they cover that they're the first to cover a certain procedure or a certain medication, the patients all run to them and all want to be covered by that particular insurance company. And that costs that insurance company money.
4: It it's it is pretty interesting. But I, I mean, I think, I don't know, insurance executives, I, we've all dealt with insurance uh, folks for prior authorization and things, uh, you know, you want to assume that their kind of heart and their objective, their lens is focused on the patient, but and sometimes it isn't. And that's where I think we as physicians kind of band together and, you know, really have to be, you know, advocates for our patients. And, and I, I know we only have 30 seconds before the break, but I can tell you that if I've I've never run into an insurance company that will not cover a procedure after I have jumped through the hoops that maybe I didn't want to jump through, but I, you you basically have to you know make your claim uh, and and they have to approve it, but they they do it usually, but it just it just delays care, which is frustrating.
3: Well, coming up next on the heart of innovation we are going to get into the heart of this discussion and bring in our special guest dr barry Tetter, interventional cardiologist from jonesboro arkansas he has a story to share
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and Interventional Cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Happy Saturday. Kim and I are live on the air, and we're going to welcome Dr. Barry Tetter, Interventional Cardiologist, and Barry... You, you know, we're kind of on the, the topic of insurance companies and maybe delaying um, approval for procedures, but this really hit home for you and a patient not too long ago. Do you want to share share this, the story?
5: Yeah, sure. Thanks uh, for having me on the show. Um, you know, we're we're kind of used to the insurance process approval. It's frustrating. It takes an average of 14 days to get somebody approved for a peripheral or corner procedure. And you have to jump through all the hoops. We have to make sure the history is correct. You have justification. Of course, there's two categories. There's the claudication patient that is relatively stable that you can afford to wait. And then there's the critical limb ischemia with foot ulcers or gangrene or rest pain that you really need to move on with, but they treat them the same. It's 14 days and then you might get denied and then it's another 14 days. So we've got multiple people in our office working on that. We have a a uh, kind of two, two, or three people. And one of them is a clinician, a nurse that has to make sure all the clinical stuff is appropriate. So we go through all that. And that sort of stays out of my hands for a little bit, other than making sure my note is documented. Right. And that, that takes a little bit of work to make sure that's what the insurance company wants. So
4: Barry, if I could just interject real quick, can you explain to our listeners like how this process works? So, you know, I'm your patient, you, we talk about a procedure And you say, okay, I'm going to schedule that. And so the patient oftentimes assuming that it's going to get scheduled the same day. Or, I mean, you're going to, we're going to schedule it that day and they're going to get it done like the next day or a few days, but that's not the case, right?
5: Right. Correct. Yeah. We have to tell them we'll contact them because we don't know when it's going to be approved. And uh, so, you know, kind of to jump into the story of this lady, she's um, 50 years old. I first met her when she was having, not long ago, having heart attacks. So we've done coronary stents on her, and then she kept re-occluding her stents. So we went through the process of that. Uh, so she's not exactly a healthy patient. She's a diabetic smoker. And so I noticed, you know, we were talking about that she has severe claudication or leg pain when she walks very short distances in both legs. And I evaluated her and did a CT, and she has long chronic total occlusions of both superficial femoral arteries. Oh, wow. So those are sometimes difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And um, this insurance company called Summit Community Care, which is a branch of Anthem, said in their approval process that any lesion length longer than five centimeters would not be approved. And I'm like, what? What guidelines to- did that come from? I mean, you may—I don't know what you think about that, but we're doing chronic total occlusions all the time, and most of them are fairly long. Yeah, so well, I think just for. Especially when they don't
3: want you to treat earlier, especially when, you know, a lot of people are asymptomatic to the point where, you know, this short focal lesion becomes this long calcified occlusion, right? Where th- their patient's ability to grow collateral vessels to reroute blood flow, disease has far advanced the body's ability to do so. And there are a few options.
4: Yeah, and, and just for our listeners, so the superficial femoral artery is basically from the growing to kind of the, the above the knee. It's upwards of 30 centimeters. I would say anecdotally, I, maybe 20% of cases I treat less than that have blockages less than five centimeters. So I, that is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah,
5: they, they sent me some guideline articles, their guideline, and they, some surgical guideline articles that kind of said, you know, those are not the best outcomes. Well, yeah, right. They aren't the best outcomes. They're very difficult. And it almost made me to send them for femoral pop bypass because it's in the old days that was considered for long lesions, the best way to do it. And nowadays it's, I, it's considered equivalent.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's reasonable option, but you know, for me, I usually take a crack at it end of, you know, with balloons or stents before I send the patient off.
5: But, yeah, at yeah. least try it. I even looked up some guidelines and they're like endovascular first. That's what they said in the guidelines was endovascular first because the outcomes generally are equivalent and there's so much morbidity. There's so much problem with uh, operative complications with them bypass, particularly in a ill patient that's already had multiple heart attacks, you know, reduced heart function. You're not going to send that person to femoral bypass. And on top of that, your surgeon probably won't bypass them anyway because they're still smoking, which is another Issue we have surgeons don't want to do film pops bypasses if they're still smoking a lot. Um, so anyway, I went through the process. OK, fine. She's stable. We can wait. So first denial. all, I think that went through a cardiologist. And now did you
4: did you st- um, try her on? Ple- well, was her rejection for fra- or rejection. 40 percent. they like so kind of borderline. So
5: actually, home. to backtrack, for some reason, I got approved to try the first time and I had a failed intervention. I got dissected and that's not terribly uncommon. And you just kind of regroup and try another time, let all the dissections heal up and bring them back a month later. I was going to come back, pop a teal uh, stick and try to get it open. And that's when this whole process got awry. So when I was trying to get approval, I decided, well, I'm going to do the other leg first and come back, let that heal. And so I got denied. So we wait those two weeks or however long. Then I got a second denial, and by now we've gone from about June to I don't know, early September. And I'm she's sitting there, can't walk ten feet without bilateral leg pain. Yeah, I did try platel. she couldn't tolerate it. She stopped taking it, and um, you know you always got to have a walking program. Have failed a walking program, that's part of the, the insurance indication, you, and which is reasonable. You should try to walk clodicants and, and see if that improves them well enough. They don't need a. Pers- can't walk 10 feet they're not going to improve with a walking program because their pain is so bad uh so second denial comes from a pediatrician i think and then i'm like what now were you were you
4: able barry were you able to have a have a a peer-to-peer with them and kind of plead your
5: case yeah for some reason there was no peer-to-peer and i'm so usually there is um yeah so then i told my nurses i said no we cannot stop here we got to do the next level I didn't even know what the next level was. I thought I might have to go to the insurance commissioner or something, but uh, it apparently went to a judge. So that was what was fascinating. So I get this call and I'm off from having had hip surgery recently. And I'm like, great. I'll get on the phone, call the judge, get all prepped for it, get on the call. And the insurance company comes and says, well, now we've decided to approve your procedure because they didn't, they didn't want to get their butt kicked by me with the judge telling them why they were so wrong. And I said, oh, yeah, we approved it a week ago, but we're getting the paperwork ready to send it to you. It's like, yeah, I don't believe that. It's like a cat and mouse game. They want to see if who would blink first, if we would quit and, and desist, because we're tired of it. And I think that's their game. I think that's their whole game is pushing long enough to the physician gets tired of messing with it.
3: And I think a lot of both physicians and patients get tired of it. And they're like, you know what, just forget it. I, I'm just going to sit here and suffer, like, you know, I, I can't be bothered. I don't even have enough, you know, fight in in to even go, go, go each day, let alone having to fight insurance companies and fight in court. I mean, that's really tough. So coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, I'm curious what conversations transpired between Dr. Barry Tetter and his patients and, you know, the suffering that was involved over the summer while This patient was awaiting approval, so stay with us.
6: Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking.
7: Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me.
6: Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age.
7: Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine.
6: My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal.
0: Yeah, it turns out we all have
6: peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup, mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to
3: you.
7: No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough.
3: PAD. life Life and limb could depend on it.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversation uh, with Dr. Barry Tedder you know, Barry, before we went to break, I was scratching my head a little bit about the whole notion of not having a a peer-to-peer conversation about getting this procedure approved, because that's usually what happens in in my state, or at least in the insurance companies we deal with, that, hey, maybe there's a question about why I want to do something. I call a peer, which could be a pediatrician, it could be a cardiologist, whatever. We have a conversation. I share more information, and typically... You know, they move things forward for us. But in this sense or in this situation, you're potentially going to be in front of a judge. And obviously now the insurance company says, no, no, we're going to approve the procedure. So we're waiting, getting uh, the uh, procedure on this patient as we speak.
5: Yeah, the patient's been waiting, you know, but that's typical of these claudicants because sometimes she's been having these symptoms for years and nobody knew what was wrong with her like, oh, it's your nerve neuropathy or your legs are weak. You know, I don't know, about you, but I've had patients come in, in a wheelchair before thinking they were something wrong with their legs, neuropathy. And, you know, we work on them and they end up walking. And it was all because weakness in their legs from an atypical claudication. So, yeah, she's been suffering, but has been suffering for years. And she may have some neuropathy, too, but it's, uh, you know, she has difficult diffuse disease. And we're just trying to get her in the system. And it takes a long, long time.
3: And yeah, the longer you wait to open up these arteries, the the chance that these patients are going to have permanent pain. Is that not the case? I mean, the, the damage to the, the, I mean, the nerves is, it is not like, reversible.
4: These folks that are, yeah, I mean, the folks that are the, the claudicans. I think we have to differentiate between the clodicants and those with right. critical limb. So the clodicants – and, you know, I get the insurance companies. They want you to have exhausted every conservative but aggressive treatment option for the patient, which, Barry, you did. She failed the medications. I mean, I always find it, yes, okay, fine, we're doing a walking program, but the patient really can't walk because her legs are so so mm-hmm. you know, bad. But, um, you know, I, I think they – I've never had a patient with critical limb ischemia be denied a procedure. Uh, I think it's more more the, the clodicants – Um, I don't know about you, Barry.
5: Yeah, It's it's more the delay for the CLI than the denial. It's like they get approved, but it's the delay. I've gone to lately just saying, I'm just going to admit to the hospital. That's just the only way I can deal with instead of somebody that has progressive gangrene that I'm worried is going to get worse. Maybe I'd like to do it in five or seven days, but I don't think I can wait two to three weeks. So sometimes I've gone to just admitting them, and that's about the only way to get around the insurance issue because then they'll cover it. So yeah, I agree. I I do, yeah.
4: yep, yep. We um, we end up doing that too, just because you don't you don't have time. Particularly if you're seeing people from out of state, I just have them come to our emergency room, which is not the best thing to do, but it's the only but thing. Isn't I isn't it
3: more doing. expensive for these insurance companies to have someone go through the insu- in the emergency room and ha- end up with the procedure versus simply going through clinic and having the procedure.
4: I, I don't know for a fact, but I know it takes up a bed. Our emergency room is packed as it is. You know, we've got people, we've got um, kind of remote emergency rooms or uh, parts of our hospital that serve as like an overflow. And so, you know, the beds are limited. Your take The patient's taking up a bed. They might be sitting, you know, let's say they come in on a Friday. Well, we're not doing that case till Monday. So now they're sitting over the weekend. That's costing I money. Imagine. Yeah, so I would imagine it, it's yeah. more costly.
5: got to be.
3: And it's interesting. We had a patient last year who found the way to my heart, our 501c3 patient advocacy organization, while she was sitting in the emergency room waiting to be admitted because she came to the emergency room with debilitating, she could describe it just as excruciating pain as if a tourniquet was wrapped around her leg and her tissues and her muscle, everything was just screaming. And the vascular surgeon came in And it was a Sunday night and he said, hey, we're going to amputate tomorrow. There's nothing that's going to work to relieve the pain. There was no, you know, attempt to open up her blood vessels below the knee. And she found us as she was waiting to be admitted. And we talked to her and we said, well, if they're waiting till tomorrow to amputate anyway, we can get you into another doctor for a second opinion. And if they say amputation, you can always go right back to the emergency room and get that amputation. So she checks herself out, goes to this other doctor the next day. The doctor says, hey, I can open up your arteries today. And the insurance said, no, we're, you can't do this today. We need a few days to determine whether or not we're going to approve or reject this. And yet that same insurance company, because the patient went through the emergency room originally, they were going to pay for the amputation. That just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if you've experienced that, but but I have. And I've also had other instances where insurance companies have, they have a medical advisor, right, that reviews the case. Pediatrician second-guessing, our vascular specialists who are on the front lines with these patients saying, hey, we got a patient with a gangrenous toe here. We need to do this procedure. And the medical reviewer, who's a pediatrician, is denying the case, saying you need to have this patient on a walking program. And the doctor like, the patient cannot walk. They have a gangrenous toe. What are you thinking?
4: Well, I mean, that, that's just an example of somebody following a script. I mean, I would imagine that they have papers in front of them in an algorithmic type of format that says, check this box, check this. Well, this box wasn't checked. Okay. Well, you we got to check that box before we do it. I mean, that's, that's frankly ludicrous. Uh, you know,
5: yeah, I'm How else could a pediatrician do it?
4: <laughs> yeah. I mean that it, it's uh, but you know, getting back to the original issue of pa- the patient leaving and then going someplace else. Um, and and the, the notion that it's 2023 and we are still in the, this is the United States of America and patients are still being told that their first touch with any vascular event, you know, like a vascular specialist is an amputation is ludicrous. I mean, the notion of not uh, considering angiography or surgery or something to help these patients just boggles my mind. Yeah, and that's a,
5: why the... Go ahead. It's a lack of vascular specialists in our country. I mean, we just, and it's the lack of our primary care physicians, ER doctors, internal medicine people really understanding vascular disease and its association with diabetic foot ulcers. I mean, I have a problem with we've had to work at saying we need to see every diabetic foot ulcer. It's not just the diabetes. It's the blood flow. You know, and they don't seem to get that for a long time.
3: No, I still have patients that come to me saying that they've had amputation because of their diabetes. They've never been diagnosed with peripheral artery disease. They're like, oh, you have poor circulation due to your diabetes. We're cutting off your leg. There's nothing we can do. And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we are going to continue this conversation. So stay with us.
0: Do you ever wonder why people with peripheral arterial disease have blockages in some portions of the legs and other people have blockages elsewhere? I'm John Phillips, co-host of the Heart of Innovation with this week's medical notepad sponsored by Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated and The Weight of My Heart. Peripheral arterial disease is a progressive process of atherosclerosis that involves buildup of plaque in the arteries, particularly in the legs. Common symptoms include pain when walking that goes away with rest, and some patients have such severe disease that they develop ulcers that don't heal and that can ultimately lead to amputation. the location of the blockage can sometimes depend on the disease process that has started it. For example, patients with chronic kidney disease and severe diabetes often have more blockages below the knee in the smaller vessels, whereas patients who have diabetes and Other risk factors, including high cholesterol and smoking, can have blockages in the thigh. It's estimated that 30 to 40% of patients have multi-segmental disease, meaning blockages both above the knee and below the knee. Depending on where the blockage is located, dictates the type of treatment options that are available. Not all peripheral arterial disease and not all blockage needs to be treated with a procedure. However, we use different techniques and different tools depending on where the location of the blockage is. If you have been diagnosed with peripheral arterial disease or have risk factors for peripheral arterial disease, including diabetes, smoking history, history of coronary artery disease, or high cholesterol, you need to talk to your health care provider. This is John Phillips with this week's Medical Notepad.
2: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Tedder, and Kim and I were just kind of spitballing about uh, insurance companies and the headaches they provide. (laughs) But uh, I think it's a good time to bring in uh, some of our callers. Um, Douglas, I know you've been listening. You've uh, made some comments in the chats. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts are here, what your thoughts are regarding what we've talked about and potentially patients being marginalized and, or kind of pushed aside uh, regarding need for certain procedures.
6: As you, as you were talking there, Mr. Phillips, I was thinking, so I go to the doctor, I do my thing with you, and then you send me home and I have to wait for that phone call. And it's that in in between that is what goes through my head about all the things, you know, the insanity about am I going to lose my leg? Am I going? Is this going to happen? How long am I going to recover? And all that stuff. And I don't. That's the part where I don't feel included in that thinking process. And like the, why wouldn't the insurance call me and say, Mister Salisbury, what would you? How do you feel about this? And I'm 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 letting some guy in some <laughs> office somewhere make a decision about my leg.
3: I mean I know that it, has to be so frustrating.
6: So and I've, I've been, been waiting I've been waiting a week for a phone call from the heart doctor and I'm still waiting. I fell again last night, but you know, and it's like so here I am still waiting. And every time I have a little moment with my heart, um, there's a thought process. Well, I'm just going to fall over now. (laughs) It's like, that's it. So it's that in between. And we hear that a lot in the group about that waiting period. And we're not included in that thinking process. Or we don't get those phone calls to keep us up to date. And so that our brains don't go places it's not supposed to be like Google and YouTube and all that stuff.
3: I know Dr. dr Google is very, very popular when you're sitting at home suffering and waiting for insurance to approve a procedure or even just simply to see a doctor.
4: And I'll be honest with you. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about when, I mean, there are certain cases that you see a patient and you're like, okay, I need to get that person in like tomorrow or we're going to send them to the emergency room. But somebody that has claudication and that, you know, I say, okay, let's set them up. And I don't think much about it, frankly. I just kind of, okay, here they are. Uh, That day they show up and we do the procedure. And, but that is something I maybe should think more about, I guess. I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to it at the present.
3: But it's Uh, really good that you're not facing, you know, the struggles that people are not denying your claims. And it could be something with um, Ohio Health. It could be something with, you know, maybe there's a state law that prohibits the denial, you know, of a doctor. It's something that's worth looking into. We do have Dr. Jesse Martin actually calling in. Dr. Martin, hello. Thank you for joining the Heart of Innovation.
8: Hey Kim, um, I have a question. next. I'm actually I'm an international radiology resident um, at uh, St. Louis University Hospital. Um, I just have a quick question for the uh, attending docs on. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest critics, the biggest critics of atherectomy, um, most of them state the lack of um, randomized control trials. Um, other than, for instance, uh, stenosis, there really hasn't been any um, randomized control trials for atherectomy. I personally believe in atherectomy. I've seen cases done with atherectomy that couldn't have been done really without it, um, done successfully, um, but. The biggest critics usually point to that. Do you think that? What do you think the biggest um, reason for not having one, or not somebody else not doing one, is? And I'm curious if you think it would should be done to shut some people up. Also, you know, yeah. one thing about that, you know, the biggest, just for people that don't know, the the New York Times article was mainly spurred by a vascular surgeon at Johns Hopkins University. John Hopkins University is a major medical establishment, usually doctors go there to do large trials and be a part of research. I think the the better um, option for her would have been to try doing a randomized controlled trial proving that it works or doesn't work. Instead, she went to the New York Times and they wrote an article that, frankly, was exaggerated in a lot of ways um, and not really backed up by comments with evidence Maybe you could just talk on that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll share my thoughts, and then I'll let Barry share his. So, atherectomy, I, I doubt there's ever going to be a randomized controlled trial because atherectomy is here, it's, and it's here, and it's here to stay. And those of us that use it and use it appropriately know where it has benefit. Um, the problem with atherectomy, in my opinion, in the OBLs is that it gets reimbursed so much so much higher and it's very lucrative to do. And there are certain types of athrectomy that are very, very easy to do that probably aren't doing anything. And so once you kind of weed, we have to weed those people out, but for, for a company like CSI or Boston scientific to, I, to do a randomized controlled trial of atherectomy versus, you know, a cutting balloon or something. I just, I just don't foresee that happening. We all know that there's not a ton of great data for atherectomy um, but I mean, if you look at data for these drug- eluding stents and, and, and balloons, yeah it's, it's, it's there. Um, but uh, there's a lot of people that don't even use that. And so you know again, it's all it all in my opinion, a lot of this boils down to what's appropriate for the patient um, and, and what tools do you have in your toolbox to use at your facility. Um, and that, those are that's kind of how I approach this.
3: And, and my thing is, is if they do have an issue, if the insurance companies have questions as to whether or not a doctor is doing the right thing, the insurance company has the ability to say, hey, you know what? We're cutting you off, doctor. We don't want to work with you. I don't know that Medicare can necessarily do that, but I think that they are, in a sense, going after those physicians that they deem are taking advantage of the system and abusing um, the reimbursement. So I think the system is working.
5: Yeah, I'm going to step in on, you know, I use a good a bit of atherectomy too. Um, and I think it's a very useful tool. And I agree. I think the peripheral space, not like the cardiovascular space, it, there's just not going to be that many great trials. We don't have all the data that we'd like to have to say X is better than Y. I agree with that. And the studies are not going to be done. Uh, but we we know from experience, we see the, the value I think one of the reasons, like one of your questions, why doesn't everybody do it? Why do they just use plain old balloon? I think part of it is just pure laziness. It's easier to get by with just sticking a balloon and a stent in than to try and debulk de- de- a lesion. So, and, it, and it's time. You know, you're going to spend a lot more time in your, in your cath lab doing it, so it's a lot more work. So there's those issues. Um, but you know, I've, I'm a big user of the Panther OCT so CT-guided atherectomy. And I like to see the plaque and cut the plaque out make a better lumen and the balloon results are always better. And sometimes I don't have to lay a stent in the femoral artery. So I think that, uh, you know, it's somewhat the experience you get with one, and how you see results and your long-term results, which is what it's all about. You know, the problem with peripheral vascular disease, it's diffuse and it tends to come back. And we honestly don't have the, the treatment that we have in the coronary space that works as well. So, and that's one of the reasons the New York times article was, was there is because People have so much recurrent disease, and the restenosis rate is high, particularly with the smokers and the diffuse diabetics and the elderly, that we, you know, we don't have as good a treatment as we like. So sometimes we have to do multiple procedures on these people, and that's just the state of the disease, where we are now in the science and, of
4: it. And, and I, I tell my patients, when you get one procedure from me, you're probably going to need another one because that's just the way it is. This is a progressive disease. It's got a high mortality rate than a lot of cancer's.
3: Yeah. And that's why we say, I mean, it's so much better if we can, if you can walk, 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 and you can take some medication and you can get some relief and you can build those collateral vessels, it's always the, the best thing. And even with the ultimate Hail Mary of all Hail Marys, the deep vein arterialization, this newer DVA procedure where you hijack a, a vein to help reroute blood flow into the foot for those patients that are literally on deck for amputation. The idea is not for that particular procedure to be durable. It's to directly get blood flow to that wound, heal the wound, get the patient on their feet to walk, to be able to grow those collateral vessels. No need for zero to hero, we just need enough flow to get the patient on their feet, to be able to become a partner in their care and walk, walk, walk. Coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll have more with Dr. Barry Tedder and of course my co-host, Dr. John Phillips. So stay with us.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. We are, uh, as they say, rounding third with this show Uh, baseball playoffs are coming up and um, we've got a caller. Marcia. you have a question for us. Welcome. Well,
7: it's not so much a question as um, a comment. What you just said about like, you see a patient and you don't really, um, you know, then you see them in the cath lab. Like you don't give a lot of thought in between. Um, I guess you have a lot of patients and that's understandable, but I'll tell you what, I think the patient definitely feels that because all I was going to say is my cardiologist, interventional cardiologist is fantastic. And I think he knows me. I think he remembers me, knows everything about me. Now I'm seeing a vascular surgeon and I don't even feel like I'm on his radar or his office. And it's a really helpless feeling as the patient to feel that, you're not remembered that you're not on their radar. They're not going to bat for you. And so I I don't know what the answer is because I know you're busy and you have a lot of people. I'll,
4: I'll clarify that. I personally, we have an army of people that kind of track the patient for us. Um, we're always thinking about the patients, but for me, it's like, I tell, I say, okay, we're doing a procedure. My nurses, my MAs, they take care of it. And then, you know, I see the patient and and we have the procedure, but I understand. Yeah. You're kind of on an island there sometimes, particularly when you're not hearing back about what we're thinking. The nice thing about the EMR, it does allow us to communicate with our patients a little bit better for those people that are on Epic or whatever, where they're on their, my chart and they're, they're texting. And, um, you know, we do, the lines of communication are getting better.
3: And it's even more impersonal in, in when it comes to these insurance companies. Um, doctor Barry tender do you have final thoughts? We have about a minute left.
5: Yeah, I, I like those comments you just had because I, I do think yep. about that, but I'm just like Dr. Phillips. I am I'm I'm seeing as frequently. We do have nurses that are calling, but then they're overworked too. We just don't have enough people to communicate with our patients. I've just got through seeing it on the – I just had my hip replaced two weeks ago. And I went through the ups and downs of being at home and worrying what was wrong with me. And, you know, I, you don't even know who to call. I mean, you don't always have that connection. Even though I'm in the medical system, I felt isolated at home that I didn't know, you know what to do because I was feeling bad. And so it's just uh, you have to be your own advocate. Unfortunately, the patient has to really make the calls and, and bug the medical system until they get their needs attended to.
3: Yep. It's just a matter of being, you know, just on it and constantly being that squeaky wheel. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Tetter. We really appreciate you. And for all of the callers, we appreciate you calling in and sharing your perspective and, and as well as your questions. Thank you so much, everyone for joining us. I think this is a topic, John, that we're going to have to have a to be continued.
4: I I agree. And I will just say that I'm going to think about that time period between I, when I was doing the procedure, you know, when I want to have the procedure done and the procedure is done and what's going through that patient's mind. I will, Marsha, I'll be thinking about it and we're always thinking about it. <laughs> you got me.
3: It's always good to have that reminder, right? Marsha, yeah. we appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and just being candid. It, it's awesome.
2: You've been listening to the heart of innovation with Emmy award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips. The heart of innovation is for educational and informational purposes only. And advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare care team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This
4: show is distributed by The Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and
0: content, visit theinnovators.network.